We all have dreams. Some people seem to live theirs while others seem to struggle. This is, however, merely a perception. What if you could get the answers you needed to execute on your dreams? Welcome to the Platinum Mask Podcast, a show designed to ask various young professionals just how they deal with their specific ups and downs. How does one young upstart navigate competing with name brand companies? Where do we get the best tools? How do we grow from our stress and anxiety? Most importantly, how do we properly utilize our cash flow? The Platinum Mask Podcast with your host, Grayson Mask. We wanted answers, so we're going out to get them and sharing them with you. Let's get right into today's episode. Hi, everyone. Checking out the Deep Platinum Mask podcast. I am Grayson Mask. I have with me Dr. Tiffany Tajiri, who is a licensed and board certified clinical psychologist. She's also a veteran U.S. Air Force officer and a former Army behavioral health chief. Uh, this was like a conversation that originally popped up. I was able to kind of check her out on like a few different um, blogs and kind of searching kind of through platforms like Instagram on looking for other Texas-based content creators. And honestly, was able to just kind of come across some of the content she was making about um, psychology and really just be- behavioral health and uh, kind of dealing with families as well. So, you know, just wanted to reach out and I honestly wanted to just thank you again, Tiffany, for being able to take out the time today and just kind of the interest on helping me out this episode. Thanks, Grayson. It's really neat to have connected with you. I love your vision and what you're doing. You truly have a mission to promote just hope in the community. And I think this is going to be a great episode. Let's get into it. Well, I originally wanted to, I guess, first ask about, were you a, um, I guess, originally a Texas native or where'd you grow up in? I grew up born and raised in El Paso, Texas. So that's the tip of Texas, far west Texas, border town, as you can imagine, right close, just 30 minutes from Las Cruces, New Mexico. So born and raised, um, I did do a lot of traveling, you know, uh, undergraduate degree was at the University of Texas at El Paso. So I stayed home for my undergraduate degree. But for my doctorate program, I went off to Atlanta, Georgia. And then later down, down the line, I ended up commissioning to be in the Air Force for about five years, then came back to my hometown. But There was a lot of travel in between there, and it was a lot of fun, good learning experiences, and the opportunity to meet new people, and just to push myself outside of my comfort zone. And when you kind of mentioned going into the Air Force, I was very curious, did you grow up like, did you have a lot of family members that were like military family, or, you know, were you the first one? How did that break out? I know, right? So um, my grandfather was retired after well over probably 30 years in the military. And he started off as in our family as being one of the first. And so I followed suit. Now my husband, on the other hand, we didn't know each other while we were both in the military, but he is a retired service member, um, obviously former active duty, 26 years, four combat tours to Iraq and Afghanistan, very well decorated officer. But his family has over 200 years of service. So when you combine all our service together, we do have a legacy. And I remember kind of like, so before the episode, you were kind of talking about like your husband like was deployed and uh, you weren't. So like, what are the, uh, like, uh, what are the bases broken out in like the US? Like, uh, and like, was it, was the day to day look like in Air Force, like before deployment? 
Well, you know, so I'm in the Air Force. I was in the Air Force, and my husband was in the Army. So very two different service branches. <laughs> they have very different mentalities. Um, you know, of course, I think the Air Force is far better and superior. But if he were here, he would argue the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> um, I think that the Army tends to deploy more frequently than the Air Force does. Many people say that the Air Force has more of a family life favor. Um, and it's more kind of like, I hate to use the word, like intellectually based, but a lot of the people who go into the Air Force have super high ASVAP scores, which means that they scored high on their initial examinations and that are that's the prerequisite for actually getting into the military and those high scores are used for the Air Force. But day-to-day life, for, for me as a clinical psychologist, um, I just saw service members as a staff psychologist while I was in the Air Force. I had the opportunity to run multiple departments from suicide behavioral health program manager to officer in charge of various clinics to substance abuse to family advocacy. And then I did have some special time as a special operations trained psychologist where I was able to do selection assessment of special operations. So that was one of the highlights and it was a lot of fun. Now, my husband, on the other hand, did a lot of work in acquisitions. Um, He was in the CAV, which means that this was back in the day they would ride the horses, right? Uh, So they still carry the name of the cavalry. He's done so many things um, more operationally inclined than I am, but he's more of the tip of the spear while I'm the support system, the behavioral health provider, and we're more considered, you know, the, the rest of the stick, but not the tip of the spear, so to speak. I hope that makes sense to you. Yeah, I was kind of curious uh, when you're mentioning at the beginning what the, you said you're calling it the ASBAT testing, like what kind of, uh, like in the initial testing for that? Like, what are the type of questions? Like, what are the subjects? (laughs) You know, I have no clue because going in as an officer, it's not an examination we have to take because we're coming in. Um, For me, I came in with my doctorate degree. Some are coming in with their college degrees, but it's called, I think if I'm not mistaken, ASVAP. Um, And so it's kind of like, think of it like an SAT, but it's like a more functionally based SAT. Um, So I think you're doing more, when I say functional, it's like real life application stuff versus let's get all theoretical with Pythagorean theorem. (laughs) I'm guessing. That's my best guess. I never took it. (laughs) And going into like getting your degree and kind of going in already into the Air Force as an officer, and you're kind of mentioning like with the day-to-day, is there anything, I guess, that like people in the Air Force like maybe struggle with more than like a typical, I guess, like typical civilian life? You know, I think for being in the Air Force and just in the military in general, what we call a high operational tempo. So we're always going, we always have a rhythm, you know, a lot of time for different squadrons or different groups. You have your PT, which is your morning workout every morning together. So there's a strict regimen. Um, And of course, as a psychologist, I was on call a lot. So the work-life boundaries were very blurred because they always say you're an airman first, right? Or you're a soldier first. Um, and that that's true. So there's a lot of time where you have to sacrifice family time and put the career first, put the uniform on first, right? So I can operate in the context of what a military officer is, but then my specific calling, otherwise known as my Air Force AFSC, was being a clinical psychologist. So for me, it was really just working with the service members 
members, helping them overcome combat-related trauma, helping them overcome family issues. And of course, you know, as human beings, we're all prone to any sort of mental illness, whether it's depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder or borderline personality disorder, you know, just helping treat those that people can be functional. And the goal of a clinical psychologist in the military is truly to make sure that service members are mission ready. That means they're capable of being worldwide qualified and called to do their mission services at any given point in time. Is there any qualities that you're looking for when you're kind of using the word like mission ready or that they're ready to handle, I guess, whatever the procedures or whatever they need to in their job? Is there anything like, uh, I guess, any green flags that you're looking for to make sure that you know that they're ready? Well, absolutely. So I think that the first and foremost, we have to screen people coming into the military, right? And so as they come into the military, we screen them first, and that means they're capable. We deem them from a behavioral health and a physical perspective fit to deploy or to do whatever mission that is assigned to them. But then as the course goes on and before they deploy, we start to screen if are there any red flags that could be limitations for them for going. And red flags would be certain stressors in their lives, if they're on new medication, um, new behavioral health diagnoses, any thoughts of harming themselves or anyone else, just anything that might be awry, even marital issues, disputes or concerns or family issues who are sick, you know. All sorts of things, all different variables of life that come into play that affect our mental well-being and our ability to be present to execute and function at very high levels. And kind of uh, going into that, I know like with one of the qualities and kind of your job that you're mentioning is kind of dealing with that family life. Was there like when it comes to like family members that are kind of curious about, I guess, like uh, a family member that went through maybe traumatic situations in the military? Do like do family members ever reach out to you on like how they like speak to or interact with someone that possibly is hiding these traumatic events? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important for family members to get curious and to help their loved ones. Usually the flow of the process is you have an individual who comes in for therapy or treatment, right? And you're working with that individual. You're explaining to them what PTSD is. And when I have those one-on-ones, usually I say, hey, you know what? Right now we're not going into deep therapy. Let's bring your significant other or anybody who's close to you, your your go-to person. Let's bring them in on the session and really allow me to explain explain to them and you what's happening and why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. Also obtaining collateral information from the loved one about how the person's behaving that they may not be seeing is really helpful in me trying to navigate how to change certain thoughts as well as behaviors. Hmm. And when it came to that, like, so how long, I guess, what was the timeline on that you're uh, still doing this? Because I know at the beginning, you're kind of mentioning on you kind of the Air Force first and you have to be able to drop everything and be able to reach out to one of these clients. So are you still um, a psychologist within the Air Force or are you in a to a new role? Yeah. So I was in the Air Force actively. I got out in 2015. So I'd done five years and then I decided I was going to be a civilian psychologist for the Army. I went to the dark side (laughs) Uh, and I did that for about uh, 10 years perhaps. And then recently I resigned because it's time now for me to be creative. I'm a huge creative. You said that earlier at the beginning, you meet creatives and I think maybe that's probably what appealed to you. Uh, As you can imagine, the military is very much a smartly 
absolute type environment, um, and they color in the lines. And as a creative, we don't. We're like the Picassos, right? <laughs> we color everywhere. And so the reality is I wanted to start being more creative and doing the things that I found really helpful to bring peace and harmony and healing to people's lives, but it's different. Um, and it's something that would fit in the military and could work for the military, but it's something that I have yet to explore that I want to dive in further with and then bring it in. You know, you have to, when you have a creative process, then you have to work it to make it evidence-based, which means you have to prove that this creative process that you're doing with research is functional and is operational and it works, right? And so I'm in the creative content creating part. Now I'm starting to work on it with various clients and different individuals, seeing great results. Now we got to put some research to it and numbers to it. And then, you know, as it gets finalized, then I'm sure the military would be more than willing to entertain my more creative side, actually requiring the service members to be creative, to tap into what I do is called emotion-focused movement to help us process and psychologically digest our pain from a cognitive perspective, but also incorporating the body. You know, you have to use both of them. In fact, there's a doctor who wrote a book called The Body Keeps a Score. His name's Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. And he says the body keeps a score of painful life experiences. We don't want to keep that score. We want to zero that score. But in order to zero that score, we have to neural hijack our brains. We have to neural hijack it in the way that we change our thought processes. But we also have to transform all that negative energy that has come into our body and find a way to expel it or transform it. And that, in my perspective, comes through movement, right? So we're using the mind and we're using the body. We're bringing them together and we're not treating them as independent entities in their own silo. They need to be treated together at once. Mm -hmm. And I know you're kind of saying with like creativity, with that being like such an easy transition kind of from the military to civilian life and uh, that you kind of enjoyed that was like the transition. I, I know you're touching up earlier on kind of with being in the Air Force that there's such like strict time slots of kind of waking up on a specific time and uh, kind of be busy throughout the day. Was that like something that you still wanted to implement like in your creative passions or do you kind of like, I guess, the wildness of like having just a totally different schedule? Yeah. So you're thinking more of a creative is just like going with the flow, right? The spontaneity and the beauty of that. You know, I think that's a good question. I think that I am very regimented in how I do things. And so every morning um, I have a seven-year-old son. So the first thing I do is, is wake up in the morning before them and do my Peloton workout or go on my run with my dog, come back, get them all up, get them ready for school. And then we have our little family battle rhythm is what we call it. Uh, and uh, I, my husband will drop off my son to school while I just my creative zone is in the morning. Some people have it at night, but that when my mind's the most creative and I'm capable of writing and authoring anything, that's when I have to operate. So I usually operate in, in the morning to lunch hours, and then I do all little administrative things that need to be done, you know, that don't require a whole lot of brain flow, but are just more mechanical in nature. So you threw out um, with kind of like your mornings being typical for like your writing schedule. When I was kind of saying on your website with Peace After Combat with the with that book, I was very curious on, you know, do you have like specific writing deadlines that you set for yourself or do you have like a typical like need to knock this amount of pages every week or like what kind of what's the process with that? 
You know, it just depends on where you're at. So when you work with a literary agent, they actually want you to have like a time frame and goals to get things done. Um, when you're working with a publishing house, of course, and you sign a contract with them, they have their specific deadlines. Um, when you're just writing for yourself at that moment, I think the next book that I'm going to do is probably going to be self-published. Um, I like to have more control over the content that I'm doing, though I had a fabulous fabulous time working with my last publisher. I couldn't have asked for a better publisher. Um, but I think for me now with this battle rhythm, I go when my creative energy goes. When those creative juices are flowing, right, then we capitalize on it and we start writing. And I think with so much of what I'm doing, I have to focus on where my brain wants to go because that's where I'm going to be the most effective, the most efficient, the most passionate. So it's really kind of just going with the flow, staying within you know regimented schedule, but allowing my own creativity to um, take precedence of what's first on the agenda. And kind of with um, being able to write that book with um, and kind of like working in the mornings and being able to kind of finish um, piece after combat, was there – I guess like any main takeaways that you had, like when like the book was finally complete and uh, I guess like for yourself coming like for about veterans returning home? Yeah. So the reason I wrote the book um, was because I got so many questions from veterans and I'm a spiritual person, very deep in my faith, um, very grounded in Christian faith. And so I had so many service members say that they had faith, and then they deployed and they lost their faith. And they and we know based on the research that faith is one of the greatest protective factors for suicide prevention, right? And so when they lose their faith, that's a concern. And so I began to more explore the existential reasons as to why they lost their faith. Um, and then we started getting curious as to how we can reinstate it, right? And so because so many people asked me the question quite literally, where is God in war? I was like, you know what? I should write a book about that because I get that question so often. And, you know, I felt blessed that I kind of learned my algorithm of how to attack that question to bring people peace and healing. And so when I figured that out, I put it all together, um, put a proposal together, literary agent loved it, uh, signed with my literary agent. And then about a year later, I ended up signing with one of the largest non-denominational Christian publishers in the world, which is David C. Cook. They really appreciated and loved the content. And so um, really, it's helping our service members overcome the traumas that they see in combat. But I mean, it's a book that's for everyone because we all experience painful life events. So it is entitled Peace After Combat, but it could be for peace after divorce or peace after trauma or peace after any painful life experience that we may endure, right? Because the human brain, from a neuroscientific perspective, processes trauma in the exact same way, whether you wear a uniform or whether you don't. And so um, the reality is, how do we keep our faith? How do we stand strong? And, you know, how can we find a new rhythm, a new freedom rhythm for our living after we go through painful life experiences? And with like peace after combat, like uh, you're kind of mentioning with the faith being such an important, I guess, aspect behind this book. Was that something like you carried with you at like a very young age or, you know, was that taught like from family or where did it come from? Oh, that's a good question. I love that you're exploring that. You know, I grew up definitely with um, as a single, uh, my mom was a single parent and I was her only child. So um, we were like the Gilmore girls. It was so much fun. <laughs> And uh, we enjoyed our time together and she always instilled strong faith in me. We'd always pray before bed together and and she always really comforted me. Um, I wasn't 
I'm not, I don't define myself as particularly religious. Um, I find myself identifying having a loving relationship with my creator and finding my peace and freedom in that. And so ever since I was a young child and then throughout my adult life, right, when you're starting to learn your identity, you start to question the things that you do and what you believe. And then you start to explore other things and you end up finding what ends up fitting for you. And, um, I remain staying with my Christian faith, understanding it at a deeper level, because of course I'm very inquisitive and I'm all about, you know, asking big questions and big existential questions. And I want the answers, the best that I can receive. And so, um, so yeah, it was something ingrained in me at a young age, but never like in a, I don't think it was never in a negative context or an overly rigid one. You kind of touch up on like the really kind of growing up with that. Um, and kind of like we were kind of saying like not strict religious, but having that connection, I know kind of like one of the key things on your website is the rhythm restoration method. Mm -hmm. And was there like, did you knew like early on that you wanted to, I guess, connect your faith with like your psych, uh, I guess, like psychology practices or like, how would you describe that? You know, I don't think I knew exactly what my calling was. Um, I've been Figuring it out through all, you know, throughout my life. I think starting the eighth grade, I did a science fair project that was entitled Which Way, Right or Left? And it was um, actually trying to do some neuropsych assessments on people to see which genders or which demographics were favoring their right hemisphere brain or their left hemisphere brain. I know, such a nerd, right? And so I've always been fascinated with the brain, the mind, and human behavior. Um, and so I guess that followed me through high school. I thought I was wanting to go to medical school. Then I realized I wanted to be a psychologist. And then I didn't know I was going to join the Air Force, but I joined the Air Force. And so from my faith system, it's shaped me every little nuance that I've done and everything has a way of connecting to where I feel like I need to be to this date. And so um, rhythm restoration is a protocol that came out of necessity, right? A necessity for helping our service members and even helping myself. And rhythm restoration really uses the power of visualization because the brain doesn't know the difference between a real and imagined experiences. So we can rescript trauma. We can actually change the shape of the neural networks in the brain. We can change the, the memories and break down the proteins of old memories and create functional memories and adaptive memories that don't keep us stuck and hurting, right? It's like extracting the poison of a painful life experience. We can reframe things with our narrative and it actually impacts us all the way down to our DNA, Strangely enough, it's a study called epigenetics. And so rhythm restoration uh, harnesses that. And then I also created um, very recently Freedom Rhythm. And I use very vibrant, beautiful silks so people can express their emotions through movement. So they do some visualization work. And then I say, I want you to take what you visualize in your mind's eye. For example, what might a visualization be? Something very easy that we all kind of just sweep under the rug. But taking really truly about a minute to visualize everything that you're grateful for or all your blessings in life, right? And then after they're done with it, I say, now I want you to take that visualization and what you realize in your mind's eye. And I want you to project that into your own unique movement. So they use the silks for the movement because the silks are very fluid. They respond bond very easily um, because it'd be very strange for some people who are, are just you may, maybe shy to be like, if you didn't have the silks, they'd be like, how am I supposed to move? But if you have the silks, you just move your arm and it moves and, and it's very easy for them. And they start getting that emotion out. We can visualize positive things and we can rescript negative events and then project them into a movement and flow. 
like when you're kind of working on, I guess, like on your degrees, was like this idea is the idea of like movement based, I guess, recovery or practices like is that like a common thing? You know, it's really not. Um, and so I used to be a professional ballet dancer. So I danced ballet all my life since I was a little girl. Probably as soon as I could walk, I was starting to do plies and <laughs> little grand jetés across the house. And so ballet has always been deeply ingrained in me. And finally, I found a way to bring my two passions together, which is neuroscience and psychology and helping heal people. And then also bringing the performance aspect, the movement aspect um, into the equation. And, and I love it because these silks that we use are just beautiful and vibrant. They're really just a reflection of the multitude of emotions that we do exhibit. And I remember kind of saying like on um, really checking out your binary thing that like, were you still within the Air Force when you went um, like over to Fort Bliss or was that like afterwards? Yeah. So I was um, in the Air Force and then I was stationed in California and then I ended up uh, getting out, which is um, called ETSing. And then I uh, ended up here in El Paso, Texas at Fort Bliss, and I was taking on a civilian position. So I was done with my active duty time, then working in the civilian sector, still as a government employee. And it's like, because I remember like speaking to, I think like people in the army before, and I was kind of curious, is like ETSing similar to like the reserves or is it different? Yeah, no, I mean, it's just, it's just, I don't even know what the acronym means. Goodness gracious. Transition, maybe something, a word. I have no clue. But the reality is, is ETS means that you're getting out of the military service altogether. Um, usually when we get out of the military, for example, I did, we have to be in the inactive ready reserve just in case something happens. And I was in the IRR for about inactive ready reserve for about uh, four years thereafter in case they needed me for whatever reason. Um, now there's another acronym that they use called PCS, which means, um, they're transferring from one duty station to another. And was there any, like, uh, I guess, major differences between the, I guess the type of jobs of being in a military role versus being like in a civilian role, like on a military base? You know, it's very similar. Um, now everybody has their different standard operating procedures and how they do things. Some are better than others. Um, and sometimes the access to care, the, the patient-to-provider ratio can be really bad at certain locations depending on how many providers are available for the service, certain number of service members. So it can be a challenge, but the, the main line, the bottom line up front is, is this person mission capable from a mental health perspective? And whether you're a civilian psychologist or, a, um, or active duty psychologist, you're answering that same question on a regular basis. You're kind of mentioning on that, uh, I guess, the um, patient to staff like ratio. Is there like a, I, I guess, a target ratio in your mind of like the amount of, I guess, caregivers to compared to the amount of patients? Yeah, I can't like give you an exact number of what that would look like, but the reality is, is we want to be able to see our patients weekly if we need to. If we're, our schedules are so booked out because we have so many patients that we can only see them once a month, that's no good because we have to see them very frequently if we're going to teach them how to rewire their brains and to change their behavior so that they can effectively live in a functional way. But if you only see them once a month for about an hour, it's 
It's like how much effort can you do? And you can give them homework in the interim, but you really need to hold people accountable when you're asking them to change their thoughts and their behaviors that will eventually change their emotional experience. Like, was there ever, I guess, experience like being a military psychologist where like it was up to you could only see a patient like once a month or like more than that? Yeah, there were definite times. There are lots of clinics where it's like that. Unfortunately, it's like that all across America. I don't think we have enough behavioral health providers. Um, If you go even in my local area, try and find an appointment with a behavioral health provider. Most of them aren't accepting new clients or new referrals. Mm. And so if they're not accepting, then we have to wait for them to accept. And then once you do get on the books, how long is it for you to be able to acquire a position? So now what's happening because of this access to care issue is that we're now capitalizing on virtual appointments, right? So that you know, even if I have a Texas license, maybe not in Texas because Texas doesn't allow that, but there are some states that allow people to practice um, in other states virtually. Yeah. So so that we can improve that access to care issue. Ever since the pandemic, um, we've been needing more behavioral health providers and people are in more distress than they were before after everything had manifested in 2020 and 2021. And so with all that being said, we don't have enough providers. So if anyone's questioning about going into mental health, it's a fabulous job. (laughs) Go do it. We need more behavioral health providers. So you've been, I guess, in favor of like the virtual components of the role or because I remember like speaking to, um, I guess, like some therapists and psychologists of, I guess, like where they're a little hesitant on. I guess the virtual component may be taking away from like the, I guess the type of interaction you would maybe get like in a face-to-face interaction. Well, research proves that they're both equally effective virtual and in-person. I do favor virtual in a lot of ways too, because it just makes it easier for the client to gain access, right? Sometimes um, schedules don't permit but I can use my iPad and go out into my car uh, middle middle of the day while I'm still at work and take an appointment that I wouldn't otherwise be able to take because um, I'd have to drive all the way to a clinic that's you know maybe 20 miles from my house or 20 miles from my work. So the access and the convenience is really amazing. Um, and research tells us that it has the same outcome measures. I do enjoy one-on-one in person, but I also have had wonderful sessions, um, virtual sessions with people, and it seems to me to be just as effective. And I also like the fact that they're in their own home most of the time and they're in their own comfort zone, which means that we don't have to peel back an extra layer of that onion, so to speak, because they're already in a comfortable place, Right. And when you kind of throw out like with the COVID-19 pandemic um, specifically and that kind of being like such a big part of, uh, I guess, the virtual rollout with these type of roles, was there any like noticeable, I guess, like as from a psychology base, like any new conditions like brought on by like such a large pandemic? I do believe um, from what I saw, it was depression and isolation was increased um, and anxiety because people weren't interacting to the degree that they were used to interacting. And then once they had to get out of their comfort zone, you know, we all ended up feeling like hermits at home to a certain degree. And so when they're back in their work environments um, after the that long year of being in our 
own personal workspace and we're interacting with people, anxiety levels ended up getting much higher um, because we have new nuances, new energies in the room, right? We weren't dealing with everyone's energy when we were in our own little, you know, private office. But then when you're coming together and you have group morning huddles and meetings, that changes the dynamic. So I think the majority of cases we've seen, um, I think an exacerbated point of depression and anxiety across the board. And I remember kind of saying like on, uh, when you kind of like sent over the bio, like it definitely drew my eye. I was curious on like, when you're kind of mentioning a reigning Dr. Texas America 2023, I was very curious on uh, what that role was. Oh, that's fun, right? It's actually a pageant for doctors. Um, so, so many times you see Miss America, right? Um, but when you finally have your doctor degree, you want to be called Dr. America. So this one is specifically for women who have obtained their doctoral degrees. And, and the idea is that smart is beautiful, right? What we do is we try to educate the community on our passions as doctors. And um, you know, it is a pageant. So we do have a lot of fun areas of competition from interview to evening gown. Uh, goodness gracious. We also have a presentation that we do for the judges that's based on our career. And so it's just really neat. It's an opportunity to have a new platform and it's just an opportunity to really represent, especially for younger women, that smart is beautiful. You know, we have so many doctors and if there's young girls who aspire, they reach out to us and we try to mentor and instill still hope in their hearts so that they can become whatever it is that their heart dreams of being. And on like the, uh, when you're kind of mentioning like the different task or kind of like with that type of event, when you kind of said like the interview, do they have like more complicated questions for people with their doctorate or what kind of questions they ask? <laughs> yeah, there are, um, their questions usually are very nice. And so from what I'm understanding, because this will be my first year, so I competed. So fourth, I received the state title, which is fantastic. I was able to do a wonderful interview with the loving director. And then um, next, I'll have a panel of judges who will be interviewing me. But from what my understanding is, is that they they question you on what your career goals are, what you've done for the organization, but they also are very interested specifically for me, what I do as a psychologist. However, if there was a dentist who was competing, they'd be concerned about her being a dentist or a lawyer, whatever it may be that is their passion. They'll ask interesting um, questions to learn more about our personality. No, I'm, I'm definitely excited about that and really, uh, you know, wish you well to you. You know, retain the title and everything. Uh, to kind of like wrap everything up, I was just honestly curious and really just wanted to ask about, um, you know, is there any other projects or anything specifically that you're excited about and wanted to mention uh, for 2023? I know kind of like you also uh, have the nonprofit as well as kind of working on to the next book. Um, you know, was there anything you wanted to mention? Yeah, you know, I'm very excited. I have not formally launched yet, but Freedom Rhythm, emotion focused movement. I have it with E hyphen motion focus because you know, emotion is energy in motion, right? So if you find me, you can find me on Instagram, Instagram at emotion focused 
movement. And you can find me at Dr. Tiffany Tajiri. And I'm sure you'll put links, you know, um, in this podcast so people can access. But I'm very excited to see what Freedom Rhythm holds. This is the this is the work with the silks and helping people project their emotions and use their visualizations to re-script painful life experiences so that they can live free and in a harmonious state in their mind and in their body. So I'm very excited to see what is to come. And of course, this year in October, I'll be competing for the title of Dr. America. So that will be a fun adventure as well. (laughs) No, those uh, really all sound like really interesting projects. Uh, I mean, really across the board for um, you know, the writing, the restoration movement. Um, yeah, and kind of uh, with the nonprofit as well. Uh, no, I mean, it's kind of uh, definitely seems like you have a, a lot across the board for uh, advancing psychology. And uh, no, really just wanted to thank you again, Tiffany, for being able to like talk about all those things, but also just kind of, you know, your own personal journey and how you're able to kind of get into these projects. Uh, no, I think it's really cool information for anyone, you know, potentially either in the military and civilian life that's wanting to follow in your footsteps um, into these type of projects. Thanks so much, Grayson, for having me on. I liked your questions. They were You were really exploring my thought processes and why I chose the path that I did. So I think that was really great of you. And, and thank you for highlighting those reasons. Those aren't things that I've really taken to the time to ever stop and reflect as to why. So thank you. This is like a psychology session, Dr. Grayson. The check is in the mail. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely working on that degree right now. <laughs> awesome. I'm so proud of you. Keep it up. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Platinum Mask Podcast. Stay connected with us directly through the PlatinumMask.com. You can also join the discussion on Instagram at GrayMask12. If you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through maskgrayson at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Don't forget to like and subscribe to stay fully up to date. Until next time, raise a glass to success, no matter how you define it.